Father, once again, we're thankful that we have in our hands the written word of God. We have the truth. We have the only infallible source of reality that exists in this world. Everything men say, everything men have written and women have written is all subject to error, is all subject to mistakes, misunderstandings, lack of knowledge, and sometimes deliberate intent to pervert, to pervert the reality of life. But we're thankful when we come to this book, we don't have to worry about the things that are said in it. We know that they're true. Even those things that Father we may not like, but we need to change our thinking rather than try and change the word. May we always be those who take it literally. Bless now in this time we ask in our Savior's wonderful name. Amen. So we are moving into a section in our notes uh, on the page. Let's see what page is this. It is page. I covered up my page number. Page 7. And we start on the bottom of page 6 talking about the structure of the Bible, how the Bible is put together. Now this may be something that you all know, but there's aspects to it perhaps that we should think of. It might make it just a little bit easier. For one thing, if we understand the structure of Scripture, we can see the difference between the Old and New Testament. It's so easy. There's so many things that show the difference from Old Testament to New Testament. So, for example, the, old, the Jewish scholars have divided the Old Testament into, into the law, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, the prophets, which includes the four major and 12 minor prophets. And by the way, they often combine the 12 minor prophets into a single book. And the writings, which that's Joshua through the Song of Solomon. And by the way, they put Daniel in with the writings. They don't consider Daniel a prophet because, well, because he was a eunuch. And I think that's part of the problem. So they, wouldn't, they don't consider him a prophet, even though Jesus referred to him as being a prophet. So now you can see now the one difference that you can see right off the bat is that with your prophets, major and minor prophets, they were always calling the nation of Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdom, they're always calling them to come back to God or to turn to God. A lot of times when you see it translated to come back to God, it's a, it's a word that can be translated turn to or turn back to. And in most cases, it's probably turn to for the first time because they were a bunch of unsaved rebels. But so you see that you have that, in it, but you don't have that equivalent in the New Testament. You don't have some places telling you to, to come back to God as a nation. Well, why? Well, because we don't have a national situation. The church is not tied to real estate, whereas Israel was. And so by the very fact you can see how the Old Testament is set up, there's a difference right there that forces us to see. There's a difference between Old and New Testament. Now, the New Testament, it contains four Gospels, or four accounts of, of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, one the book of the earliest history of the church, the book of Acts. Uh, the epistles to the church and one book of prophecy which is Revelation now the book of Acts of course it, it has the early part of the history of the church but it only goes up to about the time of Paul's first imprisonment so it ends fairly early and there was quite a bit that happened after that that isn't recorded as factual scripture now the gospels cover the, the ministry of Christ from four different aspects of his person and I think it's important to note that uh, there was, one, there was one scholar, one, one pastor, that tried to make a single gospel narrative out of all four gospels. And you really can't do that. You can't do that for several reasons, one of which is you have four different distinct aspects of Christ in his ministry that are in the gospels. For example, the gospel of John. Almost every chapter you have some attestation of his deity, some evidence or some statement of his deity. 
and you don't have that same thing. You have, oh, the deity of Christ is evident in the other Gospels. Yes, of course it is. But in the Gospel of John, that's the whole purpose of it. Over and over again, you can see his deity. And then, of course, the other Gospels have their point. But the other problem you have, too, is that you don't have all the same events. And some of the events that look similar may not be the same. And we really don't know the events. I tried years ago to make a harmony of the Gospels. It has been done, but it's, it's more rewarding if, if a guy that's a student of the Word tries it on their own and tries to see what they can come up with. And I wound up coming up with what everyone else had come up with. You can only correlate so much assuming that some of the events that seem to be the same are the same. But we don't even know that for sure. And you really can't, you really can't do a, a perfect job of it. So you have those four different accounts, and there's four different accounts there because, for example, Luke has details that the other two Gospels don't have. And John has some things that the other three Gospels don't have. So to look at those and see that they're all different is important because that, that one book, I, I don't know, I haven't seen it, but I think it was published where you have a single Gospel narrative. And I think you probably, they probably did a great deal of damage to the understanding of the Gospels because it just you, you can't do that. So you have the epistles to the church. Now they divide into the Pauline epistles. And, of course, the epistle of James and the, and the Petrine epistles, first and second Peter, and, and Johannine, first, second, and third John. You have Jude, and you have the, the, the thing to note there is that with these epistles, Romans through Hebrews, uh, we tend to put a little more emphasis on them. Is it because they're more important or they're more spiritual? No, it's because of one thing that you need to remember. Paul claimed to be the steward. And let's look at, let's go two verses I want you to see in, in relation to this. Why, why are Paul's epistles seemingly so much more important? Well, they're important because they lay the foundation for the Christian life. Paul was the one that revealed that. So let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we find out one of the reasons that Paul's epistles are going to take a little bit of precedence in many cases is because of who he was. Now, everybody isn't a steward. And everybody wasn't a steward. And you'd think if, if there was ever time that people could claim to be stewards, it would be back in the beginning of the church. But there's only one person that ever claimed that. If you look at 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1, Paul says this, Let a man so account of us as, of minister, as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now we've talked about the mysteries before. Paul had some mysteries he revealed to the church, such as the rapture. He was the one that revealed that. Now, if he is a steward and he sets the course for this church to live by and sets the basic rules out, would he not have a, something of a place of preeminence? I mean, all the epistles are important. I'm not saying that Paul's epistles are more important. But when it comes to teaching the Christian life, is this not important? And so his writings are important for that reason. And look over to Ephesians chapter 3. This is interesting. You may not have noticed this. And... Uh, it's true, and this, this becomes part of the reason Paul is so important, because you don't see in James, because he wrote early, and you don't really see so clear in Peter, although it's inevitable, and, and it's, it's inherent in the Gospel of John, or John's writings, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, but you don't see it stated so clearly. If you see Ephesians chapter 3, look what it says, <clears throat> beginning at verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me, you were, or given to me for you, 
how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now there should be an article there. We're not going to talk about it, but it's the mystery of the Christ. The mystery of the Christ. That's talking about the relationship of the head, Christ, to the body. Now who was it, who, who was it given to? It wasn't given to Peter or James. It was given to Paul. So the dispensation, the grace, which was given to him for you. So when you look at the epistles to the church, we put something of a premium on Paul, not because he's necessarily per se more important, but because the rules for how this dispensation is to operate were given through Paul. And so that puts a premium on him, and that's why, uh, you know, we would like to, we'd like to go to other things. But so often when we are teaching the Christian life, we wind up finding ourselves heavily involved with the Apostle Paul. Now, it's not that Peter doesn't have things to say that are valuable, or James, but it's Paul is the one that had the dispensation revealed to him with the mysteries to the church. And sometime, Pastor, we should have a course on the, the Pauline mysteries. That, because, you see, you have 12 mysteries, so you'd have 12 weeks, so you could do a mystery a week. Hey, that might almost work. I'm, no, I'm not volunteering, Pastor. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm just suggesting something here. So, now... The book of Revelation is the only prophetic book of the New Testament. And like John's writings, and I like this about John. John does this in, in the Gospel of John, 1 John, and in Revelation. He gives you an outline of his book. I wish they all had done that, but he's the only one that does. And so if you look, we printed it right in your notes, I believe. Let's see, Revelation 119 on page 7, looking right at our notes. John was told by the Lord himself, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now that word hereafter is literally after these things. And those are the events that begin in the fourth chapter. Now I want to stop here for just a moment. If you turn, look, go over to the book of Revelation for just a minute. One of the, I think one of the easy ways, and I know Pastor was talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, the use of pronouns is so easy to show people the church is not going to go into the Great Tribulation. Here is another way that's equally easy. It may not be quite, I, I'm debating whether it's as easy or easier or not quite as easy, but boy, it's sure easy enough for me. If you look at verse 19, Revelation chapter 1, looking at verse 19, this, you, can use, you can use this to show people so easily so easily the church is not involved in the tribulation. And you'll see why in just a moment. He says, write the things which you have seen, verse 19. Now the things that you have seen is already recorded. The things which he had seen begins at verse 12. He says, and I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. As I turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Now the way he's going to describe the Son of Man or the Lord that's never the way he appeared. He'd never seen him like that. It said, clothed with a garment down to his foot and girt about the pass with a golden girdle. And his hair and, and his, his head, or his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was a sound of many waters. Now, I don't know about you, but that sound of many waters, that a voice like that, that would be terrifying. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I can understand why. I can understand. That's an absolutely terrifying sight. And he laid his, his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, 
I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Now that's the thing that John saw. So he wrote what he saw, the vision of Christ. Then he says, write the things which are. Now as soon as he gets done with that, he starts talking about the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels, or if you please, messengers of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which you saw are seven churches. So what do you think the things which are refers to? Context. Chapter 2 and 3, he's going to be talking about the churches. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Here's the key. I remember I said that word is translated, well, it's translated hereafter, and the King James is consistent. It means after these things. But in the fourth chapter, look how the chapter starts. After this, after, after this, after what? After the last church. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking to me, saying, Come up hither, and I will show you the things which must be after these things. Hereafter. After what things? After what things, folks? Can you see it? After the churches. You don't even know. You don't really have the tribulation set up just yet, but you have the, it's starting, the, the foundation is laid, you have vision in heaven, and eventually when you get to the sixth chapter, you see the beginnings of the tribulation. But you don't have the church. And take me up on this. Look through Revelation chapter 4, through Revelation 22, and tell me how many times you find the word church used. You know how many times you find it? You've got a big goose egg. Now, tell me, is the church involved in the tribulation in any way? You can't put them in there, folks. You can't put them in there. If, you're, if we're all honest with the book, if we follow context after these things, first, Revelation 4, 1 is after the churches. The things which are Revelation 1, 19 are the churches. After these things, you have future events. There's just, there's just no way. There is just absolutely no way that we can fairly put uh, the... the church into the tribulation. Not any part of it, not the beginning of it, not the pre-wrath rapture, not any of it. The problem I have with the pre-wrath rapture, by the way, is just because the second half of tribulation is the day of his wrath, you're telling me there isn't wrath in the first part? You're telling me that God's smiling on them in the first part when there's all kind of wars and rumors of wars? I don't think so. So pre-wrath, it just seems like that's just, they're, they're fudging on something. And I, it's, if you just take this book literally... I think if people would take Romans or Matthew chapter 4, literally, they would see who this is all about. It's talking in, about Israel. And so is the church in there. So thanks to the book of Revelation, you have, and this is one, you can use this, folks. This is very, very forceful because if anyone is honest with Scripture, they have to see after these things. Is after what? After the churches. Well, that fits in right up against what you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It fits what you say in Ephesians 1 when it says we're saved from the wrath to come. Oh, you, have, you have a number of things in there that tell you that we're not going to... And my question is simply, I'd like to hear, Pastor, do you, have you ever heard somebody explain why they think the church should go into any of the tribulation? Why, why do we have to go in there? The most I heard was I heard somebody one time allude to the fact that, well, we should be punished a little bit for our sins. Okay, let me see. Well, now, wait a minute. I thought when I got saved, my sins were forgiven. I don't know. How many of you folks have ever had a traffic ticket? Now, I've never had one. 
but I've never, but you had a traffic, after you paid your traffic ticket, did they come to your house six weeks later and say, by the way, we want another $20 on that traffic ticket? No. Once it's paid, it's done, right? Once it's, it's, it's forgiven. Did you really have to throw that in there? <laughs> well, I, I probably could have picked something else. <laughs> but it's just one of, I mean, it, it just, once, once you've taken care of a legal matter, it doesn't come back and haunt you. And God's not any different than that. Why would God put the church in the tribulation if it's for the world to punish the world? You go back in the Old Testament where it talks about the day of the Lord. It talks about it's to punish the world. Not the church. Not Israel per se. It's for the world. It's for the unsaved. I don't, just don't understand it. But. So, that's the makeup of Scripture. And you can see just by looking at that simple fact, if you think of it the right way, there's a lot of difference between the Old and New Testament. You have four, you have four Gospels that talk about the, the coming of the one who was indwelt the temple. Now, the second person of God pe- appears in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. He was the glory in the temple. But you don't find the description like you have in the Gospel, John especially. So you can see the difference between the Testaments by the way the books are composed. You don't have some of that information in the Old Testament because it just wouldn't work for us. Now, point number C. The scripture has a fourfold function for the Christian. Now, you notice I said the Christian. I was just going to say scripture has a full fourfold function, but I put for the Christian there for a good reason. Because you don't find this in the Old Testament. You don't find this promise made to the people in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was not ministering the same way. There were a lot of things that were different. And so, the fourfold ministry of the, of the Bible, this is foundational to our understanding of structure of Scripture. What does the Scripture do? For the believer, it has fourfold functions. Now, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we know the verse, I think you probably can all quote it, for all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, instruction, correction, and righteousness, that the man of, and, and instruction and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly finished, furnished unto all good works, well, the problem is there, and I don't know why it's carried forth, that is given is not in the text. Now, if you've been here, you've, you've probably heard that. Pastors have said that a number of times on Sundays. But you'll notice I put in, in here, your text literally is all scripture God breathed. Now, the Greek language, like some languages in the world, doesn't have to have a form of the to be verb. They don't have to say is. And like I mentioned before, I thought it was funny when I one job I had where there were people that were Vietnamese that had learned English. They didn't use, a lot of times they would say things and they wouldn't say the word to be in there. They'd say, for example, you okay today? Because if you did, one time I didn't feel good or didn't, my stomach was bothering me, I didn't really feel good. And one of the people said, you okay? They didn't say, are you okay? They say, you okay? And the, you could tell they were asking a question by the way they used their voice. Well, they don't, they don't use a verb necessarily. And Greek doesn't have to. So it is given by is not in the text. Now, what it does say is all scriptures God breathed. Now, just, just for a, a little aside, did you realize that is given by is not, in, the, in most of your modern translations, they, they translate it correctly. And I looked, I, I double-checked this afternoon just to make sure, and the only modern translation that does have is given by is the one I like, the New King James. <laughs> the New King James carries is given by and it doesn't have it italicized it is there is no word for given in the Greek text if you have an interlinear take me up and look at it you can see it's all scripture God breathed well all the rest of them even uh, even the NIV picks it up correctly 
But I looked at them. You have Darby. You have the English Standard Version, which is a pretty good modern translation. The New American Standard, which some say is the most accurate. I don't know whether it is or not. I'm not sure. The Revised Standard of 1952 and the New Revised Standard, all of them say is inspired. They say all scripture is inspired by God. But so the problem we have here, of course, is that many people like the King James and they think it's given by inspiration. Well, it is inspired. It is God-breathed. It's not the people. It is the book itself that is God-breathed. The men aren't God-breathed. The book is. And so the Bible is profitable for four things. Now, you can see them here. We, we have in here the Greek text is all scriptures God-breathed. It's a verbless clause. And there are four distinct functions of scripture. Now, this is for the believer. Remember, this is for the believer. I don't find anything exactly like this in the Old Testament. Maybe if you hunt around enough, you could find bits and pieces of things that would help you. But you're not going to find it concisely stated like this, and you're not going to find the Old Testament doing what the New Testament does. There's another thing that's different. The New Testament is going to do some things that are way different than the Old. First, first of all, you'll notice it says the Bible is profitable for doctrine. Those are things we believe but do not practice. Now, we're going to, we'll address this a little bit more fully. But there are things that we believe and don't practice. I believe everything in the Old Testament. By the way, if you say, I believe the Old Testament, but I don't practice it, are you diminishing the Old Testament in any way? I don't think so, but there are some people who think that if you don't keep it all and practice it all, somehow you're taking it away. You're taking it away from people. You're saying you don't have to live by this, so you're taking it away from them. No, we don't take it away from them. We would not know the future of Israel. We would not know why Christ came in the first place without the Old Testament. We would not know a lot of important things that the New Testament picks up on. We would be left with having this person come on the scene, this king of Israel, king of Israel, why? What, what's this all? You wouldn't understand any of it without the Old Testament. So the fact that we say we believe it all and the, Old the Bible is profitable for what we believe, it tells us that there's a lot that we don't practice, but we believe it. No, there's a lot of things we don't practice. You know, I don't practice, I don't practice the doctrine of theology proper, the doctrine of the nature of God. I don't, I don't do something with that, but I do use it to worship God. I don't practice it. But what I know about God comes out. A lot of it comes out of the Old Testament. The second part of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 50, you can find a lot of wonderful things stated about God. There's some, some of my favorite verses about what deity is like is found from Isaiah 40 up into Isaiah 50. There are beautiful things stated about God, but we don't practice them. Now, it's also reproof. Now, the, you notice the next one. Now, I gave you the words. You'll notice that G1319 and G1560 that's because I'm encur I encourage everyone, and I keep doing it, if you want to do some Bible study, if you want to see the languages and understand them, if you get eSword, you can use these. There's a function in eSword that you can track every word that's in here by these numbers, and you can see every place they're used without knowing a single word of Greek. And you can see how they're translated, you can see where they're used, and you can do a little bit of work. And if you don't have eSword, remember one other thing about it. It's free. Now, that's... Pastor, that's my kind of price. I can afford it free. I even actually made a donation to them. I thought it was such a neat work. You can make donations, and I thought it was worth doing. So this word reproof, it means to objectively prove, objectively proof or means of proof, evidence, and in a negative sense, correction. Now, you'll notice we say the written word of God has unique ability. It is the critic. So you can see it can reprove because it's the critic of, the, of what we're thinking, 
and of what we intend to do. Now let's go back to Hebrews 4.12 for just a second. This is a characteristic of the Word of God, and this is, uh, this is something no other book ever has done. I don't know about you, but I've never read a book about something that said I should do it that made me really feel like I had to do it or made it feel like they were reading my mind. But if you've ever read the New, the New Testament, if you've read it more than once and you get through some of the epistles, at some points you're going to feel like, it's speaking to me. This is like this book is speaking directly to me because there's something I'm doing that I shouldn't be or something I need to do. And it's like it's speaking to me and I can sense it. It's because what it says in Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is quick or living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder. Now notice, dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner, or if you please, a critic of the thoughts and the intents, what, you're, what we're thinking about, what we're planning to do. It corrects us. It reproves us. So this is, this is unique because Scripture is, is so powerful. You can, it can, you can read through it and you get this sense of, this is wrong, I can't do this. Well, the pastor was reading, a, reading about the verse when you come to the verse in, in uh, Romans 14 where it says, whatever is not a faith is of sin. You know, I've read through that sometime before when I was thinking about something and it hit me right between the eyes like someone was saying to me, that's not a faith. There was a voice to me. Now, I, I, now I'm not mystical. I'm not, I'm, I, may be, I may be goofy and I have a sense of humor, which I do. You ask my grandkids if they could speak. The things I tell my grandson <clears throat> gets better all the time, too. But I'm not mystical, but there have, been, there have been times when I've read that or that verse comes back to me when I'm thinking about something. It comes back to me. It's like someone is speaking to me now, whether that's God doing something, or whether it's the fact that the Bible is, I've read it so many times that it sticks in my mind, and it comes back to me, it's not a faith, you can't do it. Or don't do it because you're doubting. Those two verses come back to me all the time, because this is a living book. Now, I, I, if it, I don't see how it could be any more alive unless it walked up to me and said, hey, stupid. <laughs> if it did that, I might listen to it even better. You never know. But you'll notice, and you can see that the, the word for thoughts, I have some references that you can check and see how it's used. And, of course, you can, you can change, chase those words down in, the, in your uh, e-sword if you want to do that. So the, the scripture is just remarkably powerful. Now, the next one, this one is very important to me. This is one of the big, biggest single differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament that you're going to find. And this marks the difference between them because correction and you have your word there, and you, I even gave you how to pronounce the Greek word, eponerothesis. An action related to false correcting amendment or making things upright. And of course, I, I borrowed these from some lexicons, and, and, and my, as I read through the uses of this word, I would agree with the definition, and I think they said it better than I would say it. So, why is this so important? Why is it so important that the Bible does this? Ah... The epistles, of the, church, the epistles to the church don't just correct us of wrongdoing without telling us how to correct it. Now, you say, well, so what? Go back in the Old Testament and see if you find places. Go back and read Exodus 20 where the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments is. Let's take, for example, thou shalt not covet. Now, if you read through that chapter, will you find a way to keep from coveting? Will you find anything that God says, do this? Here's how you don't covet or murder, you go, you go through the Ten Commandments and you tell me, do you find any way that you can be kept from doing it or make it right or stop from it? But you do in the New Testament 
Consider that well-known verse. Galatians 5.16, printed right in your notes. This I say, walk in, or if you please, by the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, Paul doesn't just stop by saying, don't walk by the, don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But he's going to go on and tell them how they could keep from, from fulfilling the lust of the flesh in this chapter. And he's going to tell them what the works of the flesh are. And that would show them so that they would know when they needed to walk by means of the Spirit. He tells them what they need to know. Now, you don't find that in the Old Testament. You don't find anything similar to this. And so this is how you see, one of the ways you see the difference from the Old to the New Testament. When you look at this, this is just another evidence. I can't see how anybody can confuse Israel and the church. Because you don't find this in the Old Testament. You, don't, you go back and you look up the word. There's a perfectly good word for hate that we see in the New Testament. That's, it occurs all over the place in the Old Testament. And the most that they were ever told to do is in one of the Psalms, David said, I hate your enemies. I hate with a perfect hatred. I hate them that hate you. He didn't overcome hate. He just learned how to direct it in a way it was acceptable. Now, I hope that you don't think when you look at the works of the flesh that you think, well, temper. How do I direct temper in a way God would be pleased at it? Well, when I throw the hammer after I hit my thumb, I'll say, amazing grace. I've used that illustration too many times, Lynn. I've hit my thumb. Of course, my thumb knows all about that. No, so you don't have the same thing. Now, you please notice the bottom page, number two with a half moon, pastors and Bible teachers should never tell believers to do something without telling them how to do it from the epistles. That's a hobby horse of mine. I've heard a lot of sermons, and I bet everybody in this room has heard sermons where they said, you should do this. You know, my, my favorite illustration is, and I, I beat up on that poor hymn, and that poor hymn is going to fall out of the hymn book, Dare to be a Daniel. If you look at that hymn, it tells you, Dare to be a Daniel. How? How do I dare to be a Daniel? Look at that hymn and tell me. If you go home and look it up online, and you can see all the verses of it. How do you dare to be a Daniel? Dare to stand alone? Dare to have a purpose firm? Dare to make it known? How do I do that? I don't know how to do that. I don't have the ability to do that. But you see, the New Testament isn't like that. If it says walk by means of the Spirit, there is the empowerment to do so. We're told what to do. We're corrected and, and we're set on the right path. And so, uh, we're on top of page 8 now. And so, we have correction and we have instruction in righteousness. Now, this word instruction, top of page 8, is an interesting word. I give you the, the once again, I give you the Strong's number. You can look it up. And it's pronounced paideia. And it means to provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. Now, this again, I don't know that you find this so clearly in the Old Testament, although you do find some evidence of it. If you look at Psalm 1, it talks about meditating in the Scripture. So you do kind of find a little bit of this in the Old Testament, but you don't find the detail. Pastor was just closing on that section where he's summarizing the Christian life. You don't find anything in the Old Testament about how to overcome a sin nature. And did you know that looking, having the world's goods and goodies, that was a big part of what they were promised. They weren't going to overcome the world. They wanted as much of it as they could get. And God promised them that. Well, go look back at Proverbs chapter 3 for a moment. There's a verse that people like to use, and I kind of wince it when they do because I like what it says in one way. But I don't like what it says when it's kept in context and when you read the whole verse because people don't read the whole verse. But in Proverbs chapter 3, you can see how, some of the difference because we don't, 
you know, the instruction in righteousness, we want people not to love the world. Well, I don't think that's what you see back here. I don't think that you'd ever find any Jews saying you don't love the world. No, they wanted as much of it as they could get. Let's see. Okay. Verse, uh, okay, here we go. Verse 5. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into, unto thy own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct that path. Stop right there. Doesn't that sound good? It sounds wonderful. And I would, I would not disagree with that part, but let's keep on reading. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. That's what Job said himself. Job also said that. It shall, now it says, It shall be health to your navel and marrow to your bones. Honor thy Lord with thy substance and the first fruits of all thy house. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out new wine. Oh, wait a minute now. How do I get to that point? Uh, well, you see what happens is, is this, we can't do this. But you can see that's, this is why the Jew would not be a friend. They would not be overcoming the world system. They wouldn't even understand it as an enemy. Now, you know, the other thing is, too, in the Old Testament, how much do you see about Satan in the Old Testament? If you've read through the Old Testament, one thing you know is you don't see a lot about him. Isaiah 14, you see him there. You see him in Ezekiel 28, if you understand it. You see him in the temptation in the garden. We know that from the New Testament. You just see the serpent. You don't know who the serpent is until you get to the book of Revelation. Do you realize that? Revelation in the 12th chapter identifies that old serpent as being the devil. So you don't even know who the serpent was in the Old Testament, unless you'd have the new. So you only find a little bit about Satan. Now, how would you overcome this one if he's not even hardly present? Now, if the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same, if we all have the same thing as believers, as the Old Testament had, where's the information? Why would they overcome the world system when they wanted to have wealth and happiness? And God promised them that. If you go back, one of the key passages in understanding the Old Testament, I believe, is Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you want to help people, if someone says, well, Israel and the church are the same, just take them to Deuteronomy 28 and ask them how much of that applies to us. Did you, what, does anyone remember what was the greatest curse of the law? You get 50 points if you, if you know it. Now, I'm going to leave Pastor out. But do you remember what the greatest curse of the law was? Go back to Deuteronomy 28 for just a second. Under the law, there was penalties. But you know what was interesting to me? There's nothing about heaven or hell. There's nothing about salvation being lost, gained, or anything of the sort. It doesn't have anything. It has about material blessings if you're obedient. But now, what is the greatest curse? Well, when you get towards the end, there's 68 verses. The first 14 deal with blessings for obedience to the law, and the next 53 deal with the curses. Wait a minute, you got like a 4 to 1 ratio, curses to blessings? I don't like those odds. Those are not good odds. But as you get toward the end of the chapter, he goes through all sorts of things. And let's begin in verse 63. This is, no, this is going to be the final, this is the final curse, so this is going to be the, the culmination. And you can see by context, when you read through this, there's nothing more that can follow after this. It's, and it shall come to pass that as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and to bring you to naught, and you shall be plucked from off the land whether you go to possess it. You'll be plucked off of the land. Remember, Israel was promised a land. They went there. And so now the final one is you're going to be plucked off of the land. After all these other things happen, you're going to be taken off the land. And let's continue. It gets worse. And the Lord shall scatter you among all people from one end of the earth even to the other. Has that happened, by the way, folks? 
Uh-huh. You find Jews everywhere, all over, the, all over the planet. And there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, even wood and stone. Among these nations you shall find no ease. Has that happened to the Jews? Oh, try the Holocaust on for size and other things like that. Neither shall the sole of thy foot have rest, but the Lord shall give you a trembling heart and a failing of eyes and sorrow of mind, and your life shall hang in doubt before thee. Ah, that's happened to the Jews. And you shall, and you shall fear day and night, and you shall have no assurance of your life. And you'll, you'll notice, it goes on from there. It gets a little bit worse, the last couple of verses. But you see, this was the greatest curse of the law. Now, how does that square with anything we know in the New Testament? How does this... There's, there's nothing in here about what to do, how to live your life. There's no instruction in righteousness, but there sure is a lot of warning in here. But there's such a difference here. You know, this, was, this is the difference between the Old and New Testament. The biggest single factor is we're told what to do and how to do it. And if we're wrong, we're told what to do to correct it. But you don't find that in the Old Testament. Now, doesn't that tell us that there's a difference between Israel and the church, if anything does? The pastor had a course on that. We went through a whole bunch. So I'm just adding more material to your course, pastor. Now you can add to your course if you want to <laughs> next time around. So now, so this four, this, you'll notice point number D, this fourfold purpose of Scripture for the Christian plainly shows the need to use Scripture correctly. While all Scripture is God-breathed, it is not all to us, even though it is all for us. Now notice, the issue is not whether we believe the totalitarian totality of scripture but what parts of the scripture we practice the distinct this distinction is clearly borne out by the use of two important greek words for doctrine now here without apology i want to look at two words for doctrine and they're both important and they show the difference because you don't see this in the old testament you don't see such a clear delineation between what you believe what you practice you have a lot of material in the old testament but it's not set up like this you don't see what you do, what you believe, and so forth. But you've got two distinct words. Now, there are two words that you'll find translated doctrine routinely in the King James, and I give you both of them here. You see didache, didascalia, G1322, G1319. And these words are, these words are different. Now, there, would, there are some who'd say, oh, we're splitting hairs. But you know what? If there are two different words for doctrine that God puts in his word, I think there might be a difference between them. Because if there's no difference, why wouldn't God just use one of those two? If it was all just the same thing, then there would only be one of those two words. Why are there two? There are two because there's a distinction. And if we're honest with Scripture and take it literally, all we have to do is look at a few of the places and we can see there's no question there's a difference between these two. And that shows us as believers, our relationship to the Old Testament comes right out of that and our relationship to the Israel, you can see how people can say that there is one people of God and not see that that's not possible in light of what this says? It's just not possible. It doesn't make any sense. You know, there's a form of uh, dispensationalism today where they want to say there's one people of God, there's one new covenant. I'm sorry, but they're not taking the Bible literally. And dispensationalism is a result of taking the scriptures literally. So these are people who are not taking it literally. So... The first word, didache, means doctrine we believe and practice. Now, there are, there are passages that are just so perfect. Let's go over and look at Romans chapter 6, verse 17. And this is important because this is part of the Christian life. And this is, uh, this whole section in here is wonderful. 
Let's start reading back at, at verse 11 and just read a couple verses, then we'll jump up to verse 17. Paul says this, Likewise, reckon ye yourselves also to be dead indeed unto the sin. Now, there's a definite article there. Throughout this chapter, most of the time sin occurs, almost every time, there's only two or three times out of the chapter where sin is not preceded by a definite article. He's talking about the sin nature. Likewise, reckon yourselves indeed to be dead unto the sin, the sin nature, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, is that, a, is that how I live? Is that instruction in righteousness? Absolutely. It's what I do. If I want to have the fullness of my, of my faith, I have to be able to overcome my enemies. Otherwise, I'm going to be like this. Commit a sin, confess it. Confess up on the top, another sin, got to get down, confess it, come back up. You know, that roller coaster way of living is, is, is not the best for Christians. If we learn to deal with that old nature and those works of the flesh, we don't have to be doing that. We can have some consistency. So he says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto the sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the reason he's saying that goes back to verse 1. What shall we say? Shall we continue in the sin that grace may abound? He's talking about how we live, isn't he? Are we going to keep on living in the sin nature? He says, no, reckon yourself to be dead to sin. And then he says, verse 12, Let not the sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey the lusts thereof. Can a sin nature ruin people's bodies? Can, can it ruin people's lives? Well, if you have drunks, yeah, they're drunks. You have people that have unclean minds, people that are involved in adult and, and, and envy and, and so forth. There's temper. Uh, there are people, their whole life is, is just dictated by that. You can see it. It can ruin your life. Now, when you get to verse 17, look what he says. But God be thanked that you were servants of the sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. This is that word that we have Didache, G1322. You see how it's used? It's clearly used of doctrine that you practice. There's no doubt about it. So when we look at the scripture, there is scripture that we are supposed to practice. Now, it, it, just one other verse. Look back to Acts chapter 2, and you'll see it again. And so when you understand this, you'll see that there's so much more about scripture that we can understand that people just overlook. This book is not just the same from beginning to end. There's so much of a difference between Old and New Testament. I hope you begin to appreciate it. And I hope it, I hope it challenges you to read it. Because if you don't read the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of things that you believe that are going to encourage you. Because God was faithful to some people, even though they were scoundrels. You'll find a bunch of scoundrels in the Old Testament. So I, I don't feel so bad about my life because there are people that were really a lot worse. But if you look at Acts chapter 2, and there's an interesting section here. Uh, you, have, you have two sermons in Acts chapter 2, but one is only found in a couple of words. The first sermon was to those who were, were, were righteous individuals that they heard about the resurrection of Christ. And it was to them, in verse 36, Peter said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This was, to, this was to individuals who were believers. This were the ones described at the beginning of the second chapter where it said um, in verse 5, there were men and there were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. These were people who were there. They were Old Testament believers. Now they found out there's a change. That now there's a change with Christ. Something has happened to him. He's become Lord and Christ. He's become the risen and glorified one. He's the head of the church now. 
Well, now that's one sermon, but you'll know that there's another sermon in here. If you can look down to verse 40, it says, and with many other words. Now this is, this is a word, uh, is, you're probably familiar with the word heteros or hetero something, it means different. It's with many other, or if you please, many different words, he did testify and exhort saying, be saved from this untoward generation. Now it says, save yourselves. The problem, there's a problem there. It's in how you translate a simple Greek verb. That for, the verb is, can be middle passive, which means save yourselves, or it can be passive, be saved. Now I dare say that nobody in this room believes, I hope, that you can save yourself. So it's be saved. So what's, what people don't realize is in verse 40, after he's spoken to those who were believers, he's going to speak to the unbelievers. And, and we only get just the summary of it. Be safe from this untoward generation. I'd love to know what all he said. This is one of those places where like, just a little more detail. I mean, it made a longer chapter, but I'd have still read it. It'd be very interesting to know. So, But anyway, you notice down in verse 42, and, well, let's read verse 41. And then they that, that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. What were the apostles telling them? How to live. What to do. They have no Old Testament revelation. The Old Testament doesn't tell you how to live as a Christian. That's pretty obvious. It doesn't tell you that. So they continued. You notice they continued. They were doing something. They were living what the apostles doctrine were. They were telling them how to live. Now, there's, they had, you can read the book of James, they had some ideas of how to live as believers until Paul came along and that we have more. But you can see it still talks about this is a word, it's doctrine that you practice. They were practicing it. Now, the other one, the other one, you'll notice point number four on page eight. Uh, while we, while Christians, when Christians, uh, well, let's see, no, excuse, point number three. Didascalia means doctrine, this is G1319, doctrine for belief and for edification, but not for practice. Now, you can see it. If you look over at Romans chapter 15, the uh, King James doesn't pick it up. I wish they had translated it a little bit differently. But if you look at Romans chapter 15, you have that word translated, not as it, I'd like to see it translated. It should have been translated as doctrine. But in Romans 15, verse 4, it says, For whatever things were written aforetime were written for our doctrine, that we through patience and comfort of, or if you please, from the scriptures might have hope. Whatever things were written aforetime were written for our doctrine. They were written to help us. How? that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now, how, how would that work? Well, I alluded to something. You know, David committed a terrible sin. What he did was more than adultery because God held him accountable for murder. You go back to, you go back to, the, you go back to uh, First Chronicles, I think, First, uh, well, you go back to the account, I think it's First Chronicles 12 or 13, where David commits sin with Bathsheba, and he makes sure Joab puts Uriah, the husband of this man, on the very front line so he gets killed, so that he can have this woman. Now, you read that and you think, oh my gosh. Nobody, I mean, this, this was a man after God's own heart except for that one thing he did. You look at that and say, God should be done with him. But you know, I look at that and I see some encouragement because God forgave this man. He forgave this man. He paid a price. Yes, he did pay a price. He had trouble with his own house. 
His own kids rebelled against him. His, one of his sons was going to kill him and take the throne. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you don't remember that, one of his sons wanted to kill him and, t- and take the throne. He was going to kill his dad. He was told how to do it. One of his advisors wanted him to kill his father. So he, he paid a price for it. But yet, when I look at that, I see that God forgave this man. God restored this man. And you know what? I haven't done anything that bad. None of you have. So I look at that and I say, if God can pick a guy up after he's done a sin like that, there's nothing I've ever done is that bad. Because there have been times in my life, and I, none of you have ever been there, I'm sure, but I've had times in my life when I've done things that I thought, God should be done with me. God should be finished with me. I'm done. God, no hope. But then I look and I see people in the Old Testament that God wasn't done with. How about Abraham? Oh, my word. Abraham was a source of encouragement. That man stumbled along. It took him forever just to believe that God was going to do anything. And it was probably a good 50 years from the time he was saved in the 15th chapter till he performed the greatest act of faith in the Bible. He was ready to offer his son Isaac. I look at that and I say, you know what? God's not finished with his own. God's not finished with me. I'm not perfect now. But you know what? I look at what happened to Abraham and God put up with Abraham for 50 years. Even after he was saved, Abraham did the same thing that he did before he was saved. Remember he offered his wife? He offered his wife? What scumbag would do that? Just be honest. What scumbag would do that? Ah, I'm surprised that she went along with it. Maybe, maybe she went along with it because she thought he, she knew he was a scumbag. Maybe she thought maybe I'll get rid of this guy. But he did it after he was saved in the 20th chapter with Abimelech, and Abimelech reproved him. Abimelech was a Philistine, by the way. Philistines later were real good friends of his, if you remember correctly, in the Old Testament. <laughs> real good friends. They were fighting with him all the time. You know, you look at that and you say, if God can work in the lives of these individuals, if God can take this man, Abraham, and can put up with him until he brings him to a point where he does the greatest act of faith in the Bible, then he must not be done with me because I'm still here too. Now, maybe I won't do the greatest act of faith, but just maybe I'll get a lot more mature. Maybe I'll reach a point where I'll be the person I should be, and I can look back and say, wow, look what God's done in my life. I hope you can do that. I look back once in a while, and I look back five, ten years ago, and I can see a difference in my life that God's made. And what encourages me is I say, Abraham, I just, all I have to do for myself, I just say, remember Abraham. Just try that, folks. Go from 15 to 22, and you're going over about 50 years. You go over about 50 years that this man lived before he did anything. So just say Abraham when you think that God's done with you because he's not done with you. It does say, it does say over in the, in the book of the Philippians that he that has begun a good work and you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now I get a lot of hope when I look at the Old Testament. Now I don't live like Abraham. I don't do anything as Abraham did. But I sure get a lot of encouragement out of him. And he's not the only one but he for me is he's the big guy for me. So, look over at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here's another place where you can see, uh, if, if that one wasn't convincing, uh, if Romans 15 wasn't, although it's good to me, and this is used a lot of places. I've just picked what I think are some of the clearest places. I, I don't want to bury you under verses. We could do that, but it, it's not. Well, we'd be here all, all month on just this one section. And we don't want to do that. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's see. Well, we, we should, uh, let's go back to verse, beginning at verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Okay, the law. He's talking about Ten Commandments. Yeah, he's talking about the law. Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous man. Oh, you mean it's not made for, tell me how to be a better Christian? 
Pastor, I'm missing something here. It says, it's not made for righteous men, but for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly and for sinners, for holy, unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and that there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. There is the word doctrine. Now you think this would be, oh, this is talking about how you live. No, this is talking about doctrine because he's talking about the law. We don't practice the law. Paul's already told you that. So it's doctrine for, for doctrine for faith. And here these people, what the problem was at Ephesus is they were taking the law and they were trying to bring it into the Christian life. And so he said that the law isn't for the righteous. It's for the unrighteous. That's why he's saying that. Because you notice that, look what he says back in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, As I besought you still to abide at Ephesus when I went in Macedonia, that you might charge men that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister... Well, that, oh, that's, that's a terrible verse. Rather than a dispensation of God, which is in faith, is how it should be translated. You can see our King James translators were not always consistent. They were not dispensational. <laughs> they weren't literal. It's really, that verse says, rather than, rather than a dispensation of God, which is in faith. And so he's talking about, what is he talking about here? He's talking about people who were practicing the law in the Christian life. And apparently, the Ephesian elders who had the whole counsel of God, somehow they quickly turned and they decided they were going to teach the law. And you'll notice what he says. And, uh, I like what he says about them. Verse, in verse 6, he says, From which some, having swerved, have turned aside into vain jangling. You know these guys that are teachers? They're vain janglers. Desiring to be teach, teachers of the law, understanding either what they say nor whereof they affirm. In other words, they don't know what they're talking about. They're vain janglers. They don't know what they're talking about. Those were people who were teaching the law. But they were teaching it for your life. But do you notice Paul says it's doctrine that we believe we don't practice it because Paul's made it very clear we're not under the law. So you have two different words. So that brings us down to an important point. Uh, let's see. Well, we have, we have another verse, too. Let's, let's look at Titus 2.10. I forgot I had that on there. Titus 2.10. You have the word there again, and uh, you can see it a little better. That in uh, You have to be careful with handling first... First uh, Timothy, because it almost sounds like he's saying it's doctrine that we practice. No, if you look at the context, it's, he doesn't want you practicing. It is doctrine for your belief, but you don't want to practice it. Now, in Titus chapter 2, he said, beginning at verse 9, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and please them well in, in all things, not answer again, not purloining or stilling, pilfering, but showing good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of theology proper, what God is like, is something I believe. It's something that helps me a great deal in my personal life. But I don't practice it. I'll give you an illustration. My favorite illustration of how the doctrine of God helps you is that you know that Scripture makes it very plain that God fills all the heavens. But then we know that when Christ ascended, he went far beyond the heavens into God's essence. So I look and I say, God is immense. He's bigger than the universe. Now, how does that help me? Oh, I have such big problems. Pastor, my problems are so big. Nobody could possibly have. I have to do the worrying because God doesn't have the time. I've got to take. 
I've got a God that's bigger than the universe, and I have the, and I'm stupid enough to sit and worry when I could turn to my father and ask him in faith to help me with something or commit it to him if I have a problem. Yeah, the, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of theology proper, of knowing what God is like, it can, it ought to change my life. Now, I don't practice it, but boy, does it help me. So you can see this, this word for doctrine is not what we practice. Now, keeping that in mind, uh, we should, well, we should stop. We'll come back. I want to come back and, and we'll talk about what happens when you don't do that.